these Germans really need to lighten up on the whole Christmas spirit. Oh, couldn't you say that about everything in Germany? (laughs) You will be merry. It will be enforced by a demon. Yeah, um, and not just that, but, I mean, it's down to children not to do anything unholiday. Toe the line. It starts young. That's how you get efficient, disciplined Germans. St. Nicholas is not coming this year. Instead, a much darker ancient spirit. Those are hooves. Elk or a goat? What kind of goat walks on its hind legs? His name is Krampus. Everybody, hold on to each other. He is the shadow of St. Nicholas. I'm Rose. I'm Hannah. And this is More's More, the Bad Movie Podcast. Where today we're talking about Krampus. Krampus. That was the most pretentious way you could have said it. (laughs) I was saying it like Omi says it in the movie. Oh. Starring Tony Collette. Adam Scott, David Koechner, who everybody knows from uh, Anchorman, he's the sportscaster, Allison Tolman, and various other people. Yeah, mostly kids, other than that. (laughs) We open on a Frozen Universal logo. So, right from the start, you know they're not afraid to shake things up. Oh, yeah. Did you have expectations for this movie? They're all gonna be shattered. (laughs) We open with a slow-motion montage of chaotic, destructive consumerism at a big box store. All to the lilting tones of, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Fresh stuff, 2015. (laughs) I know. Especially since I think a lot of the whole people being trampled at big box stores isn't actually true. Um, it's not true. Past that one time, I think that it happened. And I get that we have to, like, act to see things. But one of the employees was standing in the, like, right where everybody was trampling. You saw the doors open, and he's like, no! And I was like, did you not realize that they were opening the doors? Yeah, get out of the way. Run for it. why you're at work. (laughs) Don't stand there. Uh, we seamlessly merge into a fist fight during a nativity play that is inside the big box store. I know, I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be, like, just an imaginative way to combine the two scenes and it's actually supposed to be at the school, or if they were actually putting on a nativity scene at the big box store. No, I think they're in it because when they zoom out at the end, they're in the store again. Yeah. But the fist fight is between Max and... Who's, what is he, like, 10... Yeah. And another kid. And his parents, Tony Collette and Adam Scott, Sarah and Tom, are running to pull them apart. Okay, but you've missed the most important thing in this scene, which is in the back, there's a little girl that's dressed up like a Christmas tree. Oh, no. <laughs> like, that's clearly her part in the scene is is a Christmas tree. I did miss that, and I love it. It was amazing. <laughs> nice. We cut to their house, and uh, it's a scene from... The George C. Scott version of A Christmas Carol that is surely in the public domain, (laughs) and that's why we saw it. So it's also foreshadowing because it's the scene where he's talking to the ghost of Christmas 
future, and he says, is there still any hope? <laughs> we find out Max got in a fight because another kid was saying that Santa isn't real. And he's like, oh, I just didn't want it ruined for the little kids. And really, you can tell that Max is really sad. And he just wants Christmas to be like it used to be, which is kind of funny because in this movie, it's really just made to be all about the Christmas spirit and how important Christmas is, which is always so strange to me in a non-religious context. Right, because then it's just some random holiday. Right, and it's it's like your failure for not having filial piety on a day that it's traditional to have it on. Yeah. And that's, like, it, it's honestly more Confucian than anything else <laughs> at that point. Tom and Sarah are not great at problem solving with their kids, which is evident by the fact that Max also blames the physical aspect of the fight on the fact that he's had a bunch of sugar to eat. And he is not argued with. Feed your child. Oh, I know. He's like, all I've had to eat today is like fudge and whatever. And I was like, well, okay, I see how that can happen. But will you please tell your kid not to use that as a crutch for a reason why he punched another kid? Mm-hmm. Also, you know, this actually means that it must have been some sort of imaginative way to combine the Black Friday thing with the Christmas pageant. Because we're now... Like, a couple days away from Christmas. Yeah. No, exactly. So it's it must 20... have just been their imaginative way of showing it, which yeah. also makes it look like it was taking place in the, the big box realtor. It's December 22nd. Yeah. So Tom's mother is there baking, and she is Austrian and only speaks German. And he says, don't work too hard, because Sarah bought a bunch of cookies at the store. It's another blow to Christmas and togetherness, but it also doesn't make sense based on what we see from Sarah later, food-wise. Yeah, that she would have bought a bunch of cookies store at the cookies. Store. It well, doesn't also, really... if you know that your mother makes Christmas cookies every year, why would you buy a bunch of cookies at the store? Um, especially because your Austrian old school grandmother is gonna make some really good Christmas cookies. Yeah. Why would you pass that up? Yeah. Anyway, Tom takes a work call, so you know. Clearly, priorities in this family are askew. Yeah, although, I don't know. Although they didn't, they tried to be like, oh, they're, you know, he's got his priorities wrong. But he didn't really seem to. Like, he was, he was talking to his child about getting into a fight. He was present at dinner. He's welcoming Sarah's family. And at first, I think that you're, I mean, I at first was like, well, it's Christmas Eve. It's like late on Christmas Eve. Why is he taking this? But like, no, it's December 22nd. When people still work. To be fair, it's one phone call. Other than that, the entire movie, he's present. Yeah, no, he is. He definitely is. And that's kind of a failing that this movie has, is where they they can't decide which way they want to go with things, and those, so they sort of like half do a lot of characteristics like that, especially between the two families. Mm-hmm. Max is sad that nobody is responding to his pleas to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas and rap presents which wrapping presents is not a group activity. (laughs) So that's weird. As is their tradition. But it also seems like it's not anybody's fault that that doesn't happen because as Adam Scott says, first of all, he says, after what you pulled, you can do that by yourself. And your cousins are going to be here any minute. Which is true. They show up like five minutes later. Yeah. So that's not anybody's fault. Anyway, Omi asks, Omi is the grandmother. I don't think I said that that's her name. That's German for a grandmother, I think. Omi asks if Max has written the Christmas letter to Santa yet, which seems kind of late on the 22nd. And he says he doesn't know what to ask for this year. And then, portentously, they both listen to the family fighting. 
in the background. It was very moving. <laughs> I know. I was um, very moved. Actually, I was distracted by the fact that this 10-year-old kid was legitimately going to write a letter to Santa and not just write it as, like, a pansia for his grandmother. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, un- unclear, but he really got into it. It's it's proof when we hear the letter later that it was not just to please his grandmother. Well, yeah, because he was taking it seriously. Oh, He's yeah. Like, I don't know what to ask for this year. And I'm like, who cares? You're a 10-year-old writing to Santa. Like, yeah. Sarah goes to hang up a framed photo of the family with Santa and somehow got it developed, framed, and then hung it up before noticing that Santa is staring at her daughter's butt. Yeah. And also no one in the picture is smiling. Yeah. And isn't Beth the daughter like looking at her phone? Yeah. I mean, come on. Beth and Sarah fight about how terrible their relatives are. I guess they went over to their place last time and it was not fun. Omi is telling Max, Max asks if she believes in Santa still. And she says, of course. But I think St. Nicholas is what you make of him. And to believe in him is to believe in the true spirit of the holiday. This is ridiculous. You can't say that St. Nicholas is whoever you want him to be, essentially. Rose, you are so close-minded and old-fashioned. St. Nicholas was a real person. Say Santa. Santa can be whoever you want him to be. St. Nicholas was a real person. And that's what's weird. When she brings up St. Nicholas, now I get that they're trying to make her more traditional and Austrian and all this stuff, but... St. Nicholas is a real person and he's got really religious connotations. So it's weird that it's weird to like have him be this arbiter, but like it's just the spirit of giving. Well, yeah, because it it also makes it feel (laughs) saying that and having it be the only mention of anything like that makes it seem like the holiday isn't like I'm just imagining like a foreigner who's not Christian watching this and being like, oh, it's a holiday celebrating St. Nicholas. Yeah, that's what you would think. (laughs) Like, it's because he's this great man that they somehow love. Yeah, Yeah. you would think. Just like imagining Hindus watching this and being like, oh, it's okay. I get it. We're celebrating St. Nicholas on this day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, (laughs) If you watched Christmas movies... Current, like current Christmas movies, you would not understand what Christmas is. Yeah, uh, which is fine normally, right. but it's like in it's, this particular movie where you're bringing up a lot of this like they're trying to make good it, versus evil yes. stuff, and then you're and then the force of good is Saint Nicholas. And yeah. I'm like, what? They're making a moral stand in this movie, but the the morality is a, it's based in nothing. Yeah, no, it's just this like distillation of what Christmas means in a spiritual sense. Right, exactly. Not not religious, but spiritual holiday. She says that it's the spirit of giving and the spirit of sacrifice, and then she seems to get sad. Which is funny because that's not what it's about at all. Like, no. I mean, in a real, the, the spirit of giving, I understand. Yeah. The spirit of sacrifice is true, I guess, in the sense of like the gift of the Magi story, but right. in, in the actual fact there's nothing in the basis of the holiday that's about sacrifice at all. Right. Get out of here, O. Henry. Come on. Wait, I'm just like, you know, that's not... So, the whole Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, it's not about sacrifice. Like, all all cultures that have it as a traditional holiday, it's based around feasting. So, Beth is on her bed. She's video chatting her boyfriend, Derek, and complaining about her family and how they want to pretend to be better than they are. Derek wants her to come over and displays a bong with that a shocking amount of holiday effort went into making. <laughs> yeah. It is candy cane themed, and I just can't see a teenage boy going to that kind of trouble. Yeah. 
The house starts shaking because the Hummer has rolled up and the relatives are here. Max finishes his letter to Santa, licks the envelope before putting the letter yes! in, which is not how envelopes work. I noticed that. It's it not was so what... disturbing. And then the, no. the thing couldn't even fit in the envelope. Yeah. It's not it how getting humans... getting glue all over I it. I know. It's not how humans do that. Just as a precursor so that we know that the families are going to clash and that the other family's irritating, someone rings the doorbell like five times <laughs> in a row, four different times. <laughs> And I don't understand who's doing it because you think it's a kid, but then when the door opens, Linda's the only one standing there. And so Linda's the least likely person to do she's it. She's not the person who would have done it. You hear her telling people not to do it. And I'm like, if you were standing right there also, you really can't make your kids stop doing it? Just when you're standing right next to them? Are you kidding me? Well, what's weird is like if she hadn't been there, if it had been her husband and the kids, like you would have been like any of them. Yeah, Any I know, exactly. It. it was it was like, all of them Linda's at once. the one person who wouldn't have done it. Yeah, that's why that was so weird. Now, Linda's standing there so that she can be our liaison so that we know that the family's not terrible and they have a good heart because that's what Linda's supposed to show. Yeah, Linda is Sarah's sister. Yes. Immediately, class differences are apparent as they brought a dish of mac and cheese and their kids are mostly overweight and unattractive. The girls are boyish in lacrosse letter jackets and the boy says nothing. And I can't tell what the point of his character is except to give this poor child actor a complex for his entire life. Right. His character was fat. Yeah, fat and weird looking and dumb also. Stands there with his mouth open, possibly developmentally disabled. We really don't know. I mean... It's one thing for adults to put themselves in situations where you're responding to a casting call that's like fat idiot. (laughs) To put your kid in that situation, I don't think that that's okay. I I don't think they're capable of being like okay with, with being viewed that way. Yeah. Anyway... So the girls are really boyish. The girls are the girls are butch. I mean, they are. They are not in any sort of. I mean, they're too young for it to be anything other than like they've been pushed into sports. They've been pushed into whatever. But like, this is clearly what their parents have made them into, like encouraged them into. And we get we find out later that it's the father more than the mother. Although the mother was not helping. No, it, it's it's one of those things where you're like, okay, you can't blame all of this on one parent. Yeah, so the girls are butch, and they're bullies, and... Yeah, they're, we're, we're told they're a little cranky because the Steelers lost. Yeah. And so, one of them I legitimately thought was being played by a boy. Like, I, th- I thought... I Jordan. I yeah. thought Jordan was a boy at first. Because they've, they've given the... Or, I think she, at least, you can never see if she has longer hair. You don't ever see her hair. She's completely shapeless. Stevie, Mm -hmm. you can see, is a girl. So Stevie was actually Beth's real-life sister. Oh, that's funny. I know, isn't it? So we see that the family, but first of all, they brought a bulldog with them without asking, apparently. Yeah, I mean, guys, get a pet sitter. I know. Drop them off at the vet. Do something. They also brought Aunt Dorothy, who's immediately unpleasant and complains about their walk not being shoveled and could have broken a hip and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, where do you live? You live six hours away from here, so if you don't know how to walk up walkways by now in the snow, that's on you. Well, especially since she apparently lives in a trailer park. Yeah, exactly. Also, I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have shoveled the walk. I, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think it's true. I think it's just like you're seeing now that Aunt Dorothy criticizes everything, regardless of and Linda what like it is. apologizes to Sarah. She's like, "Oh, she's we brought there. Aunt Dorothy. Please, please don't be mad." Allison Tolman, I think, as Linda, is really 
delightful. She was my favorite part of this movie. She was good. I think she had really good comedic timing. Uh, They forgot the baby in the car also, which I don't know how you do that. Sarah is really angry that Dorothy is here, but Linda says that she was tricked into taking her because she thought they were just dropping off presents and then she had a suitcase. Which is pretty smart, Aunt Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. She says, well, you should have warned me that one of your mistakes was about to become my problem. And Linda says, well, I, you think everything I do is a mistake. History. At- also, that was pretty mean of Sarah. Yeah, I mean, and that's what you see. You know, Sarah's mean. And so this is part of the issue. I don't think they do a good enough job with a lot of characters, of pointing out their actual good sides. Right. Well, and Tony Collette and Adam Scott are both relatable. Yeah. But they're supposed to be snobs, essentially. But weirdly, they're not, like, characters of snobbery. Yeah. Tony Collette is just mean sometimes to her sister. But other than that, they seem like perfectly delightful hosts. Yeah, I know. They seem they seem fine. And yeah, I don't know. So then the other family comes across as terrible. Yes. And they don't do enough. You know, if you're trying to show both sides here, that both of them have negative sides, but both of them have heart, they didn't do that. They just leaned into showing that the the lower class family was terrible. Yeah. And they never, a lot of those characters never got a good, the kids, none of their their kids got a good side ever. So at dinner, they're sitting at a very fancy table and everything's fancy. And Howie Jr., the poor child actor, is guzzling a liter of not Mountain Dew. Not, not Mountain Dew. <laughs> they didn't want to pay Mountain Dew, but it's clearly Mountain Dew. And then he burps and there is a, just a crazy amount of laughter coming from Howard, David Koechner. Like it's never happened before, or like it's not common. My my biggest thing here was like, are you that amused every time this happens? Yeah. <laughs> like, like this is some wonderful occurrence. Well, also, um, yeah, because then he's like, my boy is going to be the biggest linebacker in the state. Yeah, he's like, I'm getting him sports ready. Right. And I'm like, you know, though, that linebackers are more than just fat. Yeah, they have, right? to, they, they have to run down the field. Like, I've they're seen a line. like muscle. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, they're not, they're not, they don't train for running. But I've seen a linebacker get that ball and take it all the way down or do it, do a touchdown when they have to. Yeah. You know? And you'd be able to push back and stuff. Yeah. Not just like a wall of fat between. Seriously. Those rude to linebackers. Most weird comics. I'm like, you're clearly someone that knows a lot about sports. So, you know, just making your kids super fat doesn't make them a linebacker. I know. I know. Did you ever spend any time on the field, Tommy? No, actually, I, I didn't have time in my younger years. I was in training mostly. What were you training for? Uh, Army? Marines? Eagle Scouts. Eagle Scouts. You don't train for Eagle Scouts. No one calls Eagle Scouts training. No. Although, it does take a lot of time. And that, because Howard starts making fun of the Eagle Scouts as, like, basket weaving and stuff. I know. I don't think the the Eagle Scouts have ever basket... Nobody would... They're not... He's acting like they're Girl Scouts, which even then, like, legit Girl Scout troops go out and do survival stuff. Right, once you get older, especially. Yeah. You know, I was known someone that was going for Eagle Scout, and they had to do, like... All that survivalist stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which you'd think would come in handy in this movie, and it didn't. It didn't. And that was interesting, (laughs) yeah. So, and he says, you know, survivalist training, and Howard says, I don't need any training except for my smokestick and my gun. And a shepherd has to protect his flock. And And you know what? That is proven right in this movie. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Um, (laughs) 
And Linda's like, honey, we said no gun talk at the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a big problem that's been addressed before. Also, this line, can we just bring up how weird this line is that a shepherd has to protect his flock line? This gets repeated a lot during the Yeah, movie. it does. And that's the only reason I put it in here, because it gets brought up later. And it's so weird that you would bring this up, because it's not... Like it's a metaphor for Jesus, Rose. He yeah, had a lot of guns and but, shot, shot enemies. Oh yeah, but so he was a militant leader. The, if you're talking about shepherds in relation to Christmas, you would always think of a Jesus metaphor, and like Jesus is the shepherd of his flock. Well, that's why and he yet, was so readily accepted by the Jews as a savior because he was the kingly uh, military leader that they expected, right? Right. right. <laughs> but you know, they never actually mention Jesus or God in the movie. They're not religious no. people. Mm-mm. So they never mention that. Otherwise, if you take any sort of religion out of it, then a shepherd protecting his flock is a crazy reference to make at Christmas. It's a it's a weird thing. In a city. I have to say it's a weird, semi-creepy thing to say anyway, like at any point of the year. Sarah is mad that the baby is throwing Gravlax on the floor, which is totally fair. Although, why do you have a carpet under your dining room table? That seems weird. And also, why did you give some to the baby? Yeah, I don't know why it's you don't in, have Cheerios. Well, I don't know why it's in grabbing distance of the baby, and that kind of seems like it's on Linda, because she's got the baby with her. So I don't, I don't get why she's just watching this happen. <laughs> and then the dog comes up and eats it, and I'm like, that can't be good for the dog. No. But Linda's mad because Sarah made a ton of fancy food that nobody really likes or associates with Christmas, and Aunt Dorothy is mad that she didn't make a ham. She says, who doesn't make a ham at Christmas? Are you Jewish or something? And I'm like, you, it's not Christmas. You a Jew? Yeah. I'm like, it's not Christmas. Yeah. It's, it's the 22nd. I know. It's This isn't Christmas dinner, guys. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Calm down. There might be ham down the road. Yeah. So while Sarah gets dessert uh, angrily, Max is tormented by his cousins. They use a very lame old nickname they're calling him maxi pad the whole movie that's okay i feel like that works with their characters right exactly um so they're they're telling him horrible stuff about santa having crashed and having to eat all his reindeer it's actually a joke that ends with the phrase eight little reindeer but you know and i still didn't get it until i turned on the subtitles and saw that they uh-huh. misspelled eight and i was like oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not a bad joke, but it's they were using it to torment him. Sarah's in the kitchen finishing creme brulee, and Aunt Dorothy's like, "What fancy concoction are you making for us now?" And I was like, "Aunt Dorothy, I don't care that you live in a trailer. You know what creme brulee looks like. Everyone because knows what you're creme an American like. adult. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows what creme brulee is. She's finishing it with the blowtorch. You know what it is. Yeah. Don't act like you don't know what it is." It's literally America's go-to fancy dessert. <laughs> Seriously. And Sarah gets really mad, which is totally fair, you know. She didn't even know Dorothy was coming, and she's coming in here just complaining about everything. And she's like, well, you know what? Next year, let's go to your trailer. And then after you decorate and cook for weeks, I'll, I, I might just waddle in and complain about everything you're doing wrong that you work so hard on. And in this moment, Dorothy's like, oh, come on. And, like, you're supposed to feel bad for Aunt Dorothy, but I don't. I didn't think you were supposed to feel bad for Aunt Dorothy. I, I thought like you were you just were. supposed to see a bit of remorse on Dorothy's face. Maybe so. Maybe that was it. 
I did feel bad for Tony Collette. I thought they did that really well. Yeah, they did. Which is the problem. Like, they, again, have made this family likable and normal. And they don't really do that for the other family. You, no. you kind of... There's a moment for the parents. There are moments for the parents. And there's also, you know, at, at, at the end, you start to like Howard, okay? Mm-hmm. Because you're like, okay, this is just how he is, but he really loves his family, and he's trying to be a good dad and all this stuff. But the the other implication is that he's bad at it still. Yeah. So, you know. Max's cousins have his Christmas letter somehow and start reading it aloud. They surprisingly aren't stopped at any point, even when they start to mention Tom and Sarah's marriage. Right. There are adults at the table. It's and everybody read in front just... of everyone and everyone's completely mm-hmm. silent except for Max who's trying to get the letter back and his sister who's holding him back from like leaping across yeah. the table. Yeah. I mean, go around the table, Max. He's like, I wish they would fall in love again. I know that, you know, he travels a lot. I think they just miss each other. Their marriage didn't seem that bad to me. No, it didn't. It didn't feel bad enough to have this letter be read. No. And then it gets serious. The only time that the cousins sort of... They keep reading even when their parents are brought up. He's like, and I know that Linda and Howard are, you know, having a hard time also. So maybe lend them a hand for the rest of the year. And then she keeps reading, and then she she reads silently, and she's like, how dare you? Our dad does not wish we were boys. Which he clearly does. Yeah. And then there's a physical fight. Max runs out of the room, says he hates Christmas and his family. He just wanted Christmas to be like it used to be, but forget it. Were there good Christmases with these people? Unclear. It doesn't seem like there can have been any. These families do not get along. And they don't get along to the point where they shouldn't be spending major holidays together. I know. It's nothing but destructive on their relationship. Yeah, it's only making everything worse. Because no one's happy to, like, the sisters aren't even really happy to see each other. So this whole, like, well, you're family and that's what you do is you go and see each other during holidays. You don't have to. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. You might have a better relationship if you just saw each other sometimes during the summer. Like, don't go at Christmas. You can still see each other and have an okay, you know, relationship, even if you don't like each other that much. Mm But don't go at Christmas. Holidays are so fraught. Tom goes up to uh, Max's room. Every year gets worse. Why do we have to put up with our crap just because we share DNA? Because that's what a family is, Max. People you try to be friends with, even though you don't have a whole lot in common. But why? Okay, you kind of got me there. (sighs) Or maybe it makes us work a little harder to find what we do have in common, you know? This is not played out at all. No one makes any effort to find it. Adam Scott, more than anyone, is yeah. placating and nice. Yeah. But you get the feeling it's None just of these people are trying an... to yeah. make any effort to make the other people happier. Because this woman, for her sister, who she knows her sister and her family, are mac, mac and cheese and hot dog people. Yeah, exactly. Made this super fancy meal that there's no way they would like. Like, why would you do that? So then Adam Scott to say this. I'm like, this isn't proved out by anything. Well, and he says, Max says, do you really believe that stuff, Dad? And he says, I want to. It's already aspirational. You don't have to hedge your bets. Yeah. So when he leaves, Max tears up his Christmas letter and throws it out the window, causing an instant storm. Confusingly, we are 20 minutes into the movie introduced to a timekeeping framework of this advent calendar. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that was weird. That, like, yeah. all of a sudden, we see what day it is by by the number and the little door opening. Well, that's a good point, especially because it probably should have opened, the movie should have opened with that. And then yeah. the pageant could have been a different day that gets opened. Exactly. So that it didn't feel like, wait, I guess this is happening now. Yeah. 
And now we see that it's only just now the 23rd. Because I think probably everybody thought it was Christmas Eve previously. Max gets up in the morning and sees that there are creepy snowmen in the yard. Which just makes me think that we're watching a Jeepers Creepers Christmas special. (laughs) No one else cares about the snowmen, uh, probably because there's no power. And it's snowing so hard that you can't even see across the street. And it's surprising because this storm was completely unpredicted. So Linda answers the door for a package. And there are other packages there already on the doorstep. Man, how come rich people get all the free shit? I don't know, honey. Democrats, probably. I was just so confused. Do they mean that the Democrats are giving rich people presents? Yeah, unclear. Like, (laughs) is it because they're Democrats? Or is it because Democrats are doing this? Like, (laughs) I didn't understand it. The stereotype is opposite. Right. That Republicans give rich people things. Right, and Democrats give poor people things. Yeah, so that was kind of... Weird, but I did like the line anyway. Beth comes downstairs and she's really worried because Derek, she's like, I've texted him nine times and he hasn't answered, which to be fair in that kind of situation would be worrying. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I don't know why they sent her out by herself. Like, okay, if he's I've not answering, huge problems don't go with out this. there. I've got such problems. And he's, you know, she's like, I, I want to go over and see if he's okay. It's just four blocks. And four blocks in a blizzard, it's fine. So that's my deal. I've been in a blizzard, okay? It's not easy. Like, even when it's not actively snowing, it's not easy to walk around, especially when you're the first person out there. Yeah, and they can't even see. It's still snowing a lot. This was an unpredicted storm, so they don't know what it's supposed to be like. They can't even get any news reports because of no power. And so for them to... I'd be worried about whiteout conditions. Yeah. And they send their their teenager out there. Uh-huh. Sarah doesn't want her to go, but Tom's like, she'll be fine, just one hour. But she walks over there. Yeah, like, that's really, an hour right there. You can't even drive her over there? And if, I don't think any of the roads are clear. Yeah, if you can't drive it, don't send someone out to Which walk Which does make it. me wonder how the delivery man got in. Yeah, that was a real... That was also really weird. But yeah, if you can't... If it was just just to check the porch and see the packages, <laughs> yeah. you could have had them walk outside to go see the snowman. Well, we had to see the van later, I guess. I guess. During Beth's walk, we are vindicated that they should not have let her go. She's barely able to walk down the street, and it's so snowy, you can't see anything. She stops at a house that, question mark, I don't know if it's Derek's house or not. It's unclear if she ever got there. She sees a giant horned figure on the roof. She runs away as it starts jumping from roof to roof, and it chases her until she finds the delivery guy frozen in his truck. Clearly by magical means, it's not like a sad weather exposure thing, because he's, like, screaming. Mm-hmm. She can't get inside the truck, so she hides underneath it. And she thinks she's escaped after Krampus leaves. We see his feet. But then she hears a jack-in-the-box musical playing and sees it on the ground. And when it pops... Beth screams, and then we zoom out to see the truck shaking. So immediately, you're like, wow, this just went here. Like, immediately. We're going to start with the kids. Immediately, a child is killed. Yeah. All right, got it. So we come home, and Tom is sitting in front of a big window. He's still got no cell phone service, so we see that it is 7.20 in the evening. Beth isn't back from Derek's, and Sarah's worried about it. And Tom is like, relax, just for once. And then we see the moment of, like, they still love each other because he, she's like, I miss us. And he's like, me too. And they're 
yeah. you know, head on shoulder. So let's definitely put some romance into this relationship that I never doubted was perfectly fine. I know. I know. So then Max comes downstairs and he's like, Mom, Dad, it's already dark out and Beth isn't back yet. And then they look at each other with worry. And I was like, you literally just talked about this and you can see it's dark out because <laughs> you're sitting in front of a window and you're in New England and it's 720 in the evening. It has been dark for four <laughs> hours. I don't know. This is crazy. So Howard agrees to go with Tom in his Hummer named Lucinda, which I think is actually a really good name for for a Hummer. Yeah, for a Hummer. Uh, to pick up Beth. Dorothy makes a remark about, you know, worrying about kids, like you leave them alone for a minute and then you have a shotgun wedding. And Linda's like, Aunt Dorothy, come on. And she's like, well, you ought to know. And I thought that was a really cheap way to delegitimize families that are genuinely like Linda's. Also, because Linda doesn't seem unhappy with her husband and kids. She seems unhappy with the way her sister treats her husband and kids. Right. And so that's what I don't like about this. I feel like it's a way for us to say, oh, that's why Linda's in this situation and with this family. Mm -hmm. But a lot of families are like that. Yeah. And I thought that this was just a way to take legitimacy away from those families and and from this family. Omi doesn't want them to go and says it's too dangerous. But Tom and Howard go anyway. And find a snowplow blocking the road. And this is their first glimpse of questionable things going on. Because there's no driver, but the glass was punched in, Mm. not out. This is enough to make Howard pull out two guns. (laughs) And (laughs) we see back at home, after a nice scene in front of the tree, there's crashing on the roof. Big sounds. That they all agree is squirrels. (laughs) Some, Some hardcore squirrels that also haven't, like, found cover during a blizzard. Yeah, exactly. If they're in your attic, they're not bonking around like that but Omi looks worried and she looks kind of up into the chimney and keeps the fire hot as Tom and Howard are in Derek's house no one is home but there's a lot of damage especially around the chimney it's weird that they assume that everyone's been killed because they don't find any bodies in there but they do find a large hoof print by the chimney they hear Beth screaming outside but they don't find anything when they go out, and as they're waiting in the snow, Howard is bitten by something that tries to drag him away. Tom pulls him clear after shooting it, and they hobble back to Lucinda, and she's been totally destroyed and set on fire, which is crazy. They burst into the house, and Howard starts yelling about needing weapons, and Tom's like, ah, calm down. There's kids. Don't stop shouting (laughs) like that. Uh, So they send Aunt Dorothy and Omi into the kitchen with the kids, and Omi is sharpening a cleaver while Dorothy gives the kids schnapps. So So good choice. Yeah. The parents discuss whether or not to leave, and then they're like, okay, we should stay here until the storm breaks and then run for it. They're going to see if the snowplow works, which is a big if. So it's a dumb plan, (laughs) and it doesn't matter anyway. In the long term. Yeah, no, it, it, so, it, it doesn't really matter. No. But I am like, why did we bring up his Eagle Scout stuff if he does I, nothing I Eagle Scouty during this stuff? He, he doesn't. Maybe they felt that it was too unrealistic that he would come up with a plan for, for running. And I, I have no idea why. It, it never came up. Well, yeah, because the plan is run to the snowplow and use the snowplow to get to the mall where... It's like an emergency relief thing. 
That's a plan anyone could come up with. I know. I, I don't understand. Sarah's really worried about Beth, and Howard apologizes to Tom for thinking that he was a coward all these years. Max is worried about Omi because she's acting weird, but Tom says that she always acts a little weird around Christmas and won't talk about why. I feel like this is something Max should have noticed before now, but... Yeah, I know. It's It's... Seems clear that she lives with them. Yeah. So that's very strange. And she's lived with them long enough that Max can understand German. Yeah. Pretty darn well. So you assume she's been living with them their whole life. Yeah, probably. So they're all camping out in the living room that night because they don't want to split up, which is really smart. And it's apparent via exchanges that while both marriages have their struggles, they are based in real love. Howard volunteers to stay up and watch... (laughs) And then there's a cut to everyone asleep and the fire Mm. has gone out. Even though Omi said to keep the fire hot. The only flame not out is a candle that could set the house on fire. So, good job. (laughs) We had to light the scene somehow. Yeah, exactly. Silent Night plays until the battery finally dies. So Krampus displays his impeccable dramatic timing. And only then does he put a giant hook down the chimney that is lowered down with a strangely round gingerbread man strapped to it. Howie Jr. wakes up and gets up and takes a bite out of it, which is insane. Yeah, no. It's insane. I'm going to say that this kid deserves to be removed from the gene pool. Don't eat food that has been lowered down the chimney on a hook to you. I know. Just rule of thumb for life. A scary, gigantic hook. Yeah, just don't. During a blizzard... With weird stuff happening. Your dad injured, one of your cousins missing. Don't eat stuff that's been lowered down the chimney to you. Right. So I didn't really make clear that Howard's leg is very hurt. Yeah. And when he's trying to lie for the kids, he's like, oh, it must have been a bear trap. And Max is like, we don't have bears around here. He's like, okay, cool. But he he, he hobbles around. He can't really walk very well. Yeah. So yeah. Also, there's a billion cookies in this house. I guarantee you. You don't need to go to the fireplace to a scary chain to find one. Yeah. The gingerbread man instantly comes to life, wraps chains around him, and starts trying to haul him up the chimney. Sarah grabs onto him, but after a long struggle, everybody trying, they're unsuccessful. Uh, Howie Jr. is taken. Never having said a word. I wonder how little they got away with paying that kid. <laughs> no lines. Omi starts the fire again and tells them this is all their fault. <laughs> so this is when Omi starts to tell her story. And we find out she can speak pretty good English. So she's basically the rudest person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. As she absolutely English is. When there's people that don't understand German around. Yeah. Which, by the way, probably includes Tony Collette. Oh, I'm sure she can't understand German. Yeah. Speak English. And it, English it, is amazing. Now she's speaking English, and it's because they didn't want to do the story in Claymation, which it is, and have subtitles, I think. Yeah. It started with the wind. On a cold winter night. Much like this. It was almost Christmas. But this Christmas was darker, less cheerful. But I still believed in Santa, in magic and miracles, and the hope that we could find joy again. But our village had given up on miracles and on each other. 
They had forgotten the spirit of Christmas, the sacrifice of giving. And my family was no different. I tried to help them to believe again, but we were no longer the loving family I remembered. They too had given up, and eventually, so did I. Clearly, as long as children, like adults can lose their holiday spirit all they want, but if children make one symbolic gesture, it that's it. Yeah. Game over. For the entire group, like this whole neighborhood is being punished because Max's family lost their Christmas spirit. And specifically because Max did. You assume it's because his family made him lose his Christmas spirit, and that's right. why the family's being punished. But like the neighborhood... There could be some very Christmassy people in the neighborhood. I know. What's happening to them? Right. I don't know. I guess the same thing. That delivery guy did not have enough Christmas joy. So for the first time, she didn't wish for a miracle. She wished for her family to go away. And she got her wish that night when Krampus came and took her family away. So she describes Krampus as a much darker, more ancient spirit. The shadow of St. Nicholas. And it can't be a derivative of anything of St. Nicholas if he's older than St. Nicholas. And it's also implying that even though Krampus is this pagan thing, his yardstick for if somebody needs punishment is whether or not they, like how well they hold a Christian holiday. Yeah. Which is weird. I knew St. Nicholas was not coming this year. Instead, it was a much darker, more ancient spirit. The shadow of St. Nicholas. It was Krampus. And as he had for thousands of years, Krampus came not to reward, but to punish. Not to give, but to take. And she was given a little bell by him with readings from Krampus. She has apparently been the worst reminder of all time. Uh, yeah, way to not share your story with anyone. And she hasn't been enforcing Christmas spirit in her family. We don't see her. She's silently been watching all of this happen. Like, yeah. them fighting or not wanting to wrap presents or whatever. Like, she wasn't saying anything. She was making no effort <laughs> to keep the Christmas spirit alive in her family. So really, this is all her fault. Uh, so everyone's super sad as the story ends until Howard, understandably, does not believe the story. Here's what I want to know, though. What does Howard think has been happening? Yeah, and I get that. I, I also feel like, though, if I was listening to this, I would be like, well, that's too weird. And I don't believe that until I get a lot more proof. I know everything's been weird, but I feel like I would still hear that story and be like, uh, maybe we'll put that in the maybe pile. I just feel like there was nothing on earth that could possibly explain what was happening unless you start going into stuff like that, like Krampus stories, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm just like, what, what? this whole neighborhood is under attack right now. People are disappearing. St yeah. Crazy stuff has been happening. It like, seems, what is your explanation? I think he still thinks it's just a crazy person. Which is, is also crazy to think that they could have come down the chimney and then hauled your son up with a chain. Also that he's what? Wearing... wearing Goat shoes? Like, yeah, I mean, sure, he's nuts. That's an explanation for everything. Because they say, they're like, oh, I've seen those. Those are 
deer tracks. I know those. I've been hunting long well, enough to know those. He's deer those are hoof tracks. They could hoof be tracks. could be elk. And I was like, what? Do you think they were elk in the yeah? I know living but room. Adam Scott is like only if they're walking on their hind legs. So already there's something weird going on. Yeah. Well, he storms off, and he's going to figure this out by going outside. And trying on his to find, injured leg. Yeah, and trying to find Howie. So they he starts to go outside, but they open the door, and there are a lot more snowmen there. So Sarah gets them back inside, and they just decide they're going to stay there and keep the fire hot. And then we see, now, it is the 24th, Christmas Eve. So Jordan and Stevie, the girls, are asking Omi about, like, what if you've been good all year? Um... And Max translates that, okay, again, we know you can speak English. Why are you doing this? Max translates, it's not what you do, it's what you believe and what you've given up in your heart. Once again, Christmas is not a season of sacrifice. So weird to bring it up again. I know. I know. But basically there's nothing they can do to stop Krampus now. Yeah. Linda's upstairs trying to rewrap presents for the kids and finds strange gifts one of which sounds like a jack-in-the-box winding inside. She's about to open it when Sarah asks her downstairs. Sarah and Tom are presenting a plan for fleeing and trying to get help. This is, this is they, they go more into their plan of like, this is what we'll do when the storm breaks. And Tom repeats to Howard, Shepard's got to protect his flock. The girl cousins go upstairs for the bathroom and hear a weird robot voice coming from upstairs, like in the attic. Yeah. I mean, it was weird that they assumed, they assume it's Beth. Right. For some reason. I don't know why you would assume that. I don't know why they didn't call their parents to be like, hey, Beth's upstairs in the attic. Yeah, I know. And I just don't, under. it sounded like a robot. It was so strange. It didn't sound like Beth at all. No. Certainly. So Beth's like, oh, come upstairs and I'll show you what I've been doing. So they do, like weirdos. And idiots. Uh, the parents hear them scream from downstairs, and everyone but Howard goes upstairs to find them because Howard can't get up the stairs on his leg. Which works out because Howard is drawn to the kitchen by other sounds. This is where Max says to Omi, I think this might all be my fault. And she's like, no. And I was like, but in the story you told, it was all your fault. Right. This is all your fault. Yeah. We've already established that it's most likely a child's fault. Right. <laughs> But I'm, once again, I do think they're trying to put the blame on the family being the the reason the child loses their faith. Therefore, right. that's why the family is punished. But which, it is, it is. I mean, which this is, whole thing is nonsense. So yeah. yeah, how dare you? So in the attic, a huge monster jack in the box with a predator mouth is eating one of the girls. We just see her shoes disappear. This is go goes back and forth. Uh, so this is happening upstairs. In the kitchen, Howard's getting shot by a nail gun operated by three gingerbread men. And he says, we should have gone to my brother's, which is the second time they've made this joke. And that's a weird thing to say twice. Yeah. This is clearly the the gingerbread men in the kitchen and the stuff in the attic that was brought in from the present bag show that keeping the fire hot isn't enough. Yeah, no, also don't... Yeah, also don't bring strange packages inside. Right, it's like Krampus can apparently get in however he wants to. Yeah. The yeah. fire has very little to do with it. Well, Because later on, some, some things bust in bust, the window. I was just about to say, that's proven later. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just a first defense. In the attic, they're being attacked by a monster tree angel. 
that flies, an evil teddy bear, and an evil toy robot who stabs Tom in the back a bunch of times, and that wound is never brought up again. Um, Shallow cuts, perhaps. Yeah, seriously. Uh, In the kitchen, Howard manages to set the gingerbread men on fire, which kills one. He shoots another one, and then is saved from the last one by the dog eating it, which can't be good because it was also on fire. Yeah. Come on. The -the jack-in-the-box is trying to escape into the ducts, and Linda sees Stevie lying on the ground, and I don't know what's going on with her. But she gets the monsters off everyone, but the -the jack-in-the-box escapes right as she's about to hatchet it. This is the first of, like, three times that it's like, oh, the woman's taking charge now with weapons. So it kind of loses its impact after a while <laughs> yeah well also they're they're keeping these moments in the movie where somebody like steps up and gets their game face on and they're gonna take care of this and they never do yeah it happens so often and nothing ever changes yeah people still just keep dying left and right normally the person who just stepped up and got their game face on like it's right. so it's so this whole time when you're like, oh, now things are going to... Oh, no, they, they didn't. Yeah, and I guess that's why ultimately the movie was kind of boring yeah. for the second half. Because, honestly, as soon as Beth gets eaten and killed, you know that none of this, you know, like, somehow this is all going to not be real. It's all going to get reversed or something like that because you don't... Just the feel of the movie wasn't... They weren't leaning into the darkness hard enough for me to think that they were killing off children actually. So then I was like, well, it's got to be that everybody goes. And so then you're just waiting for that to happen. And yeah. it's just kind of boring mm-hmm. after a while. So they're all downstairs again and they can hear the jack in the box running around the ceiling. He can't get out and he's trying to because they sealed up, they boarded up all the windows. Max lets Rosie the bulldog into the vents and Because the bulldog is like ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Which has never been a bulldog ever, as far as I'm concerned. I know, right? Seriously. She's gonna, like, overexert herself and over not be able to breathe. Rosie does not prevail. We do hear a long fight. But she does end up, I guess, knocking the jack-in-the-box around enough that it falls out of the ceiling. They're about to fight it, but they can't because everything they already beat comes back to life and is attacking them again. Yeah. And Dorothy gets a hold of a gun and shoots everything except for the jack-in-the-box when the elves bust into the window. I don't know why the elves were on Krampus's side in this. Well, they were clearly, like, dark, evil elves. Right, but they were just like, but the grandmother's just like, elves. I know, and I'm I was like, like, this is so elaborate. Are we, like, are we ignoring the fact that, as far as Christmas is concerned, elves work in Santa's workshop? Yeah, I guess he's also got elves. Krampus is like, hey, I got a workshop, too. (laughs) Makes weird toys. I'm slaving away by myself over here. That makes killer toys. With all your your elves. These guys got any evil cousins? Come on. (laughs) So they, they pull, they chain up Dorothy and pull her out. They take the baby, which is dark. And then Howard jumps on the jack in the box as it's being pulled out also. And he's taken away that way. The elves are called away by something. And Tom's like, okay, we have to leave now. We're going to leave. They hear huge stomps on the roof. And they're running for it. Except for Omi, who refuses to leave. She closes the door behind them, bars the door, won't let them back inside. And Max says she wants to face him. 
Krampus comes down the chimney, and this is the first time we see him. He's incredibly gross with a gross long tongue and fingernails so long that I don't know how he functions. <laughs> so he's wearing like a, a weird Santa mask. Yeah. Which is, is strange, so we don't really ever see his face, but his mouth's always open and it's just gross. So Omi just stands there and stares at him, and then he opens his bag of horrors, and presumably Omi is toast. Now this is confusing, because wouldn't Omi have the correct Christmas spirit in her heart? Right. She's the only one who shouldn't have gotten taken. But they don't seem to be judging people on their own personal Christmas spirit. Yeah, it's kind of like once the scales are tipped, the entire town is done. Right. So the others are fighting through the snow, and Tom is using the shotgun on that snow monster that tried to take Howard before. He uses up all its all his rounds on it and forces them to go on without him. He's going to stay and be bait. Um, he gets pulled under, only to be followed immediately in death by Linda, who's followed almost immediately by Sarah. So instantly we lose all of the adults. We're just done with this. Yeah. The filmmakers are like, we don't have time yeah, we have to wrap for a bunch of up. individual deaths, which is why Howard jumped on the jack-in-the-box. So Max and Stevie are the only ones left. They're in the snowplow, and the snowplow won't start. The elves bust in and take Stevie away. They're trying to get Max, too, but then one of the elves gets taken by the snow monster, which is weird. Guys, coordinate better. So Max sees that it's safe and and jumps out to run after them, but Krampus shows up. He stands there in front of Max and holds hands him the same bell that Omi had, and it's wrapped in his torn up Christmas letter. So, again, this is just very clear. Like, this was your fault. fault. (laughs) Yes. We get a memory voiceover from Omi, like we forgot what happened 15 minutes ago. I love those. (laughs) About how she was left as a reminder. Max doesn't accept that, though. He treks to where they are loading Stevie up into a very scary sleigh. And he yells at Krampus that he takes back his wish and he wants his family back. And he throws the bell at him. The bell sinks into the ground and the ground starts to break up and show molten core or something. I don't know. It's like a pit into the earth and hell. I think it's supposed to be hell. Probably. Where the bell fell. So they make to throw Stevie into the pit now, which I'm like, okay, I guess they're just improvising. They're like, oh, this is fine, too. We'll throw her in here. Saves us a trip. Exactly. Max runs up to Krampus and begs for his family back. And he says, take me instead. And for a minute, Krampus is like touches his tears and you think he's being sympathetic and then he just starts laughing. Stevie gets thrown in and then Krampus throws Max in too, who says he's sorry and he just wanted Christmas to be like it used to be. Transition into his bedroom and he wakes up and realizes... Why, it's Christmas Day, sir. <laughs> uh, his family's downstairs and alive. Although Dorothy, quote, hasn't felt this hungover since the Pope died, whatever that means. <laughs> Were you celebrating? Were you way too upset about it? I don't get it. And this is the first indication we've had that you're Catholic. Wow. Serious stuff. Yeah. Uh, everyone's having a great time. Max is having a great time. They seem to be getting along fine. Until Max is handed a present by Omi and opens it, and it's that bell. Gruß from Vom Krampus. <laughs> Greetings from Krampus. Yes. Uh, he takes it out, and 
everyone kind of seems to be remembering now as they look at it. We get some little memory, just sentences and voiceovers from the movie just to show that it it really happened. No one's smiling anymore. Everyone's wary. Santa Claus is coming to town, starts playing, so that we know we all have to be good still. And we zoom out and see them from outside a snow globe in Krampus's workshop that is filled with snow globes. So there's two ways that you could take this ending. It could be that they're in like a having to live Christmas over and over again with each other type hell or that Krampus is watching them now. Like he gave them a second chance, but he's watching them. So they better keep the Christmas spirit. And see, I had originally thought that it was the first one, which made this whole thing so insanely depressing. depressing. (laughs) But the fact that Santa Claus is coming to town was playing probably does mean that it's the second one. Exactly. Because he's watching you. He sees you when you're sleeping. Yeah. yeah. He knows when you're awake. So be good for goodness sake. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think that's what it is. Partly because the the punishment aspect wouldn't really make sense because they're they're not fighting currently. Well, yeah, except the Krampus is just shown as being evil. He's not shown as like wanting to teach people lessons. But oh yeah, well, no, and, I, I and, just mean that like as a punishment, they're having kind of a oh, pleasant yeah. Christmas morning, so that doesn't really it's not a great punishment. Yeah, but you know, this is kind of a sad con- condemnation of Omi's reaction to when her parents were taken. Yes, exactly, because she was not brave enough to confront Krampus and take responsibility for what she did. Her family was taken. Yeah, so you have to know going into it, like oh. This is 100% my fault. I have to be sorry for it. Yeah. Like, I don't know about this. Well, maybe that's why Krampus drags it out so much. Like, maybe that's it so that you can come to this realization and be like, oh, no, I'm bad. Because it seems like the grandmother understood that about herself. She just never really came to terms with it. I mean. Yeah. I don't know. Unclear. What's also weird is that. When it turns out to not be true, Krampus winds up looking a lot better than I think they want him to. Because now he's just there to teach you the spirit of Christmas. Yeah. In his own weird way. Well, I mean, yeah, they all certainly have PTSD now, so there's <laughs> that. But, yeah, it's uh, it's it's strange. And, and so that's the other thing. It's like a really weird horror, but they didn't want to commit to it. And is Krampus a demon or is he not? I mean, I guess so, because he kept Omi's family. Yeah, I think he is supposed to be a demon, but I don't know. It's a little weird. Cruel and but you know, fair. It's funny. Plays by his own rules. <laughs> he does. In the original legend, or the common legend of Krampus, Krampus takes naughty children. Yeah, he doesn't take... He doesn't punish the families. <laughs> And it's not like this child has lost their Christmas spirit. Not this child is terrible and deserves to be punished. Like, yeah, believe you me, back in the day, they weren't saying like, well, sweetheart, it's what's in your heart that, you know, it's not that you, it's not that you lit that horse on fire. I don't know. What was the past? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's that you didn't believe in the spirit of sacrifice right and other places you got coal in your stocking in the austro-hungarian empire you got stolen away by a demon and never seen again <laughs> i know well life was tough there <laughs> they weren't kidding around just because you're children that's no reason to shield you from the harsh realities of of the underworld <laughs> very true so yeah it's kind of a blah movie so it was better yeah. than i thought it would be but like overall just a surprisingly bland 
uninteresting movie. Yeah. It was a little bit too depressing for Christmas. And it was yeah, also it was. one of those movies where I'm like, I'm not sure what you're trying to teach me. You're not trying to get me mm-hmm. to believe in Santa. And this form of punishment isn't going to get me, it's going to make me afraid of being bad. It's not going to want to make me be good for the sake of being good. It's going to make me not want to be bad for fear of having Krampus kill my entire family. Yeah, and it's like sort of a wishmaster thing where you're like, okay, come on, Krampus. A kid wishes that his family would go away. Don't act like that's a legitimate wish that they'd be butchered in front of him. <laughs> yeah. That's, come on. Um, and there's nowhere, this kid has never even heard of Krampus before now. Like, yeah, no, I, <laughs> well, hey, you know what? We have that here, Rose. Ignorance of the law is no excuse <laughs> for breaking it. It's not a, it's not a defense <laughs> in court, yeah. okay? I'm surprised, though, there's, there's not a lot more missing families at Christmas time. That is surprising. Maybe kids are a lot braver now. Yeah, or maybe All he just has, like, a limited amount of time maybe he's not like santa where he can be everywhere you know he oh yeah it's just one per year it's like no i mean like i've got a schedule i have to maintain (laughs) limited numbers of families can be punished yeah exactly and here's the other thing so being sad that your family is murdered and stolen away from you is not the same thing as getting along with them yeah it's not the same thing as having christmas spirit right. nobody wants their family to be horribly butchered right yeah there's a lot of people that i don't want to spend any time with ever again in my life but at the same time like i don't want them to be murdered by a demon yeah i don't want them to get eaten by a jack-in-the-box right <laughs> that so come on and so that that's the other thing that i thought was weird where it's like at the end we're not really seeing people being good or different they're just scared but yeah, it's definitely not getting added to my uh, Christmas classics list. <laughs> Agreed. How did it do? So it actually did pretty well, mostly because it was very cheap to make. It cost $15 million to make. Are you kidding me? That's weird. I think limited locations, limited cast. Uh-huh. And there were a lot of, you know, the the first half was just family. Not first half. The whole first act was just family drama Yeah, stuff. you know what? That's fair. That's cheap. So that would have been cheap. And then there are huge moments in the movie, even after the demons come, where we're not actually seeing CGI. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's how it can be as cheap as it was to make. Wow. And it's also not like the CGI was so realistic. (laughs) What? Those gingerbread men just popped off the screen for me. I know. But it made $61.5 million. Good job, guys. And I think that's kind of what you have to aim for for a a Christmas horror movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, that needs to be cheap. There's a guaranteed audience for it, Mm -hmm. but it can't be that expensive because it's not a huge audience. No, and I think they really did a good job of widening their audience by having Adam Scott and Tony Collette. I think if they hadn't had them in it, it wouldn't have gotten any attention at all. Agreed. Not necessarily that Christmassy, mostly because I was a little scattered on what they were trying to tell me about Christmas. Yeah. Other than their the fact that they have maintained through the whole movie that Christmas is a time of sacrifice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so have a Merry Christmas, yeah. guys. So next up, we'll be doing another wintry movie, The Day After Tomorrow, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, yeah. When he's pretty young. Yeah, he would have been pretty young. And it will be our first Roland Emmerich movie. Uh, I don't really know who that is. 
Oh, he's done a ton of terrible movies, especially the, like, eco-disaster movies. Nice. So he did 2012. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 10,000 BC? Yeah. So someone else will be seeing more of on (laughs) More is More. For more of our podcast, go to moreismorepodcast.com. To contact us, write us at moreismorepodcast at gmail.com.